Scripture reading will be from Proverbs chapter 23, verses 29 through 35. Who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaints, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine, those who go in search of mixed wine, do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup. When it swirls around smoothly, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. And your eyes will see strange things, and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? morning. It's a blessing to be together this Lord's Day. We're thankful for the presence of each and every one here. We're glad that we have the opportunity to be together this first day of the week. And let me get that set there. All right. Hope that you have your Bibles open to Proverbs chapter 23. <clears throat> In Proverbs 23 is where we'll be looking at our study this morning. But you think about the book of Proverbs in general. And the book of Proverbs, it explores all sorts of areas of life. Search for knowledge and wisdom is where the book begins. Trying to gain understanding of what God's will is. The book of Proverbs then goes on to explore very practical matters. The necessity of hard work. Not being lazy. How to deal with friends and, and even our enemies. It warns us about loyalty to one's nation and earthly rulers. Principles of leadership are provided in the book of Proverbs. As well as wisdom in dealing with finances. The book of Proverbs deals with all sorts of practical kinds of issues. And there are many lessons that we can learn from the book of Proverbs since it contains lessons about leading a life of wisdom. And the wisdom and how the book of Proverbs is really trying to set it is a course that we are to follow that would lead us closer to God. That's what wisdom is. It's doing the things that are pleasing to God. And it's not some thing that we can never attain or something that we can never grasp. It is leading a life that would do God's will. And so we need to heed the warnings that the book of Proverbs offers and that we need to take its teaching seriously. And one of the things that the book of Proverbs is very clear on is that there is foolishness and danger attached to alcohol. In Proverbs chapter 23 and in verse 29, when he explores this, the writer does, Solomon, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? This series of questions. And then he says in verse 30, those who linger long over wine, those who go to taste Mixed wine. That's the answer. That is what is behind the woe and the sorrow, the contentions, the complaining and the wounds and the redness of eyes. 
And then he goes on in verse 31 to offer a warning and instruction uh, in the path of wisdom. He tells us the thing that is wise is to do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly, when it looks delicious, when it looks tasty, when it looks like it's something that is going to bring all sorts of good things to you. He says, don't even look at it then. Because you need to remember what's going to cause all those bad things in verse 29. Because he says, that's the beginning in verse 31, when it looks good. But then he says in verse 32, at the last it bites like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your mind will utter perverse things. And you will be like one who lies down in the middle of the sea or like one who lies down on the top of a mast. They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. What a sad predicament that after the allurement there, when it looks tasty, when it looks good, it ends with an addiction. It ends with a desire for more. To go through all sorts of negative things and bad things. And it just ends with a desire for more. And this warning is very clear. And we need to think about what the Bible teaches us and admonishes us. We need to think about what kind of relationship God wants us to have with alcohol if there is to be any kind of relationship with it. And what I want us to do this morning is to consider some examples found in the Bible and we want to see their Example and what it has to offer as instruction for us seeking wisdom in this matter. Because this certainly is not an easy thing. Because alcohol is all around us, isn't it? It is everywhere that you could ever go. It's at restaurants, it's at ball games, it's on television. It's something that we can see and you might be considered abnormal or different if you abstain from drinking it. And it certainly a powerful temptation because it seems to offer an escape from reality, an escape from all the troubles that we might have at the end of a day. It might be something that offers us ease for just a few moments, an escape from all the worries and the struggles and the trials that we've undergone. And so it's a very powerful temptation for many people. And so I want us to think about several examples that we find in the Bible. And there are at least eight drunks that we can find in the Bible of people who had an experience with alcohol. And I want us to just learn from these examples. And I want us to think about this from a very important, just seeking to know the path of wisdom. What is going to draw us closer to God? And the first book or first example is not hard to find because you just have to go to the first book of the Bible, which should come as no surprise to us that it's very early on in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 9, 
that when we see alcohol, we see it used early in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 9, after Noah has come off the ark with he and his family, they have been saved. There is the fact that Noah plants a vineyard. And that should resonate with many of us because whenever he plants this vineyard, he plants this garden. You think just a few chapters earlier in the Bible, the first man and first woman, they were in a garden, weren't they? But that didn't end so well. And so that theme is carried out when you have Noah here, that he comes and he plants a vineyard, he plants a garden. And you would expect maybe something kind of similar in Genesis chapter 9 and in verse 20. It says, Then Noah began farming and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. What is amazing in this account is that Noah, after he becomes drunk with the wine that he has planted in his vineyard, he becomes naked. And his youngest son sees him. And he has to go out and he has to tell his brothers about it, doesn't he? That here Noah is, he's lost his dignity before his youngest sons. And then you see how his oldest sons still are trying to preserve that sense of dignity that Noah has lost. They walk in backwards. They don't even want to see their father's nakedness. And so they walk in backwards and they cover their father. And yet here the fact that they had to do that. While, they, while he, Noah, did not have any dignity left, especially in the eyes of his youngest son, his oldest sons are trying to preserve some sense of dignity. And yet, what Noah did in a drunken stupor was wrong and it ultimately deprived him of dignity. In the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 25, in Jeremiah chapter 25 and in verse 27, notice what Jeremiah says about becoming drunk with alcohol. And he says in verse 27, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The God of Israel, Drink, be drunk, vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword which I will send among you. Isn't that just a beautiful picture of what's going to come because of drunkenness? To find yourself naked and people see you, people talk about you, to become drunk and to vomit and to be doing that. It's not a fun picture, is it? It's not a very dignified picture that we have. And that's the first instance that we have. And it doesn't take much longer to go in the book of Genesis about ten more chapters later. And we find Lot. And he becomes drunk. In Genesis chapter 19, you remember that after... God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of the valley. Lot and his two daughters that were with him, they go up from Zoar and they go into the mountains and they flee and they stay there. And they go into a cave. 
And their daughters become awakened to this sense that they are alone. And they devise a very terrible plot. In chapter 19 of the book of Genesis, in verse 31, it says, The firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. On the following day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve our family through our father. And so it happens again. A second time. And so we find in verse 36, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. The first bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. As for the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Here is an incestuous sexual encounter that takes place. And you could talk about how evil the plan was that his daughters would date come up with this plan, and it certainly was evil. It was certainly wrong. But then you have the fact that they were able to accomplish this through the means of alcohol. And that here, Lot, after he becomes drunk with the wine that they give him, that he loses any sense of morality that he has no understanding of right or wrong and that this is something that he should not do. should be a very strong warning for us, shouldn't it? Of the dangers of alcohol and being under the influence of it. That yes, Lot had lost his wife and two daughters and their husbands in the loss of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had lost his home and his wealth. But what he ended up giving away was far more valuable that he gave up his morality. And he becomes drunk twice. And with his remaining daughters that are alive, he has two sexual encounters with them in an act of incest. He lost his virtue. He lost his morality. And while he would eventually sober up, he would live with the stigma of sexual immorality and incest for the rest of his life. All because he pursued the comfort from a bottle. And how many times do people end up having unwanted sexual encounters because of the influence of alcohol? Certainly is something that should cause us to stop and to think about whether this is going to bring us closer to God. And walking in the path of wisdom. A couple of other accounts in our Old Testament. The first one is in 2 Kings chapter 13, in what might be one of the saddest chapters in all of Scripture. In 2 second, second Samuel, if I said 2 Kings, I apologize. In 2 Samuel, in 2 Samuel chapter 13, you have. Amnon, the son of David. He is David's oldest son. He is David's firstborn. 
And so as you would be reading the narrative here, he is the one who is anticipated and expected to follow in his father's footsteps. That he is the one who is expected to become king after David would die. And so Amnon is expected to be the future ruler of Israel. And yet he is a reprehensible and terrible character. Because in 2, Kings, or 2 Samuel chapter 13, he rapes his own sister. And you wish you could blame that perhaps on the influence of alcohol, but sadly you can't. He doesn't have that as a reason. And so there certainly is no love lost for Amnon here. But what is interesting is how he dies. In 2 Samuel chapter 13, and beginning at verse 28, Absalom, his brother, is waiting to exact revenge upon Amnon for what he has done to their sister, Tamar. And he's waiting to kill Amnon. But Absalom does not do that just at any time. He waits for the right moment. In 2 Samuel 13 and in verse 28, it says, Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear, have not I myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule. They waited until he was drinking wine. Because alcohol has the ability to dull one's senses. And not just in matters of morality, it has the ability to dull your senses in every way. Where you're not even alert to any danger that might be happening to you. When someone could come in and hurt you or kill you. The same thing happens in 1 Kings chapter 16. In 1 Kings chapter 16, a very wicked king in Israel, Elah. And 1 Kings is a very interesting chapter because you just have all of the craziness that occurs in Israel. All the wicked kings and, and successor after successor or after there is a plot to take over and establish a new dynasty, a new family that would rule in Israel. And we're told about Elah and how he becomes king in 1 Kings chapter 16. And in verse 9, you have Zimri. He is the commander of the army. And his servant Zimri, commander of his chariots, conspired against him. Now he was at Terzah drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household of Terzah. Then Zimri went in and struck him and put him to death in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and became king in his place. An assassination attempt. Both of them are successful. One against Amnon, one against Elah, because of the influence of alcohol. When we 
are willing to participate and drink alcohol. There is a dullness to our otherwise good and common senses that would just help us keep ourselves alive. And with an already wicked heart like Amnon and Elah both demonstrate that they were wicked and they were terrible people, reprehensible people. With an already wicked heart, their senses were dulled to know anything. In the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 31, in Proverbs 31 and in verse 4, notice what the words of King Lemuel is that have come from his mother. It says in Proverbs 31 and verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, for they will drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. What Lemuel's mother is a mother who knows best gives instruction to her son and says, you don't need to have anything to do with alcohol. Because you will make bad judgments. You will make bad decisions because of the influence that it has. The power that it has. It will cause you to forget things. It will cause you to do things that are wrong. It's destructive. And you can see that the examples of Amnon and Elah, that they lost their lives because their senses and their mind were, were so dulled to what was going on around them that someone was able to come in and kill them and assassinate them. But isn't that what happens with alcohol? How many times do people get into a car after drinking alcohol and making a poor choice to get behind the wheel? Something that ought to alarm us and alert us to the problems associated with it. Think about Solomon. Solomon is considered to be the wisest man who walked the face of the earth, isn't he? And yet, he gave up that wisdom in a pursuit for a lesser kind of wisdom. And he did that because of alcohol. Notice in what he says in Ecclesiastes, in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 2, notice what Solomon says about himself. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and verse 3, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. He says that I was trying to stimulate my mind with wine. Like in this pursuit for another kind of wisdom, a lesser kind of wisdom. A wisdom that would allow him to pursue worldliness. A wisdom of this world. A wisdom that would lead him away from God, which is really called foolishness. It took him away from the paths of wisdom. And he wanted to pursue the mind-altering effects of alcohol. And how many people do that? How many people have followed 
in vanity the same kind of pursuit, searching for wisdom or enlightenment through mind-altering drugs and alcohol. We hear of artists and writers and philosophers and musicians and business people who are very successful, who lead a life that is consumed by drugs and alcohol in search for something in this life. And the thing about Solomon, I believe, is that he is able, as he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he's able to look back on his life and he's able to see all the foolishness that he pursued. He lived long enough to be able to reevaluate, didn't he? He lived long enough to be able to reflect back on the mistakes that he made in his life. And to say that was vanity, that was chasing after the wind, that was foolish. But how many people don't have that chance because their life is totally consumed by drugs and alcohol and they, look, and they don't have that chance to look back and to say how foolish. They die in that kind of predicament. Such a sad thing that people are willing to give up for the pursuit of alcohol. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, you'll perhaps remember Belshazzar and the vision that he saw of the handwriting on the wall. In the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, Belshazzar is ruling in Babylon. And he is having a feast. And it says in verse 2 of Daniel chapter 5, When Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had taken out of the temple the house of God which was in Jerusalem and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. An act of complete irreverence towards God. Let's mock God, the true God. Let's bring in the vessels that we have taken from His temple and let's drink from them. And then while we're doing that, we're going to toast to the gods of Babylon and their idols. An act of rebellion, an act of irreverence towards God. And it was that night that he sees the handwriting on the wall and he is assassinated. And the Medes and the Persians come in and they destroy Babylon. A drunkard does not have spiritual thoughts because drunkenness impedes worship. It arouses irreverence towards God Almighty and it disregards the Word of God. And that's why we have instruction in teaching in the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 18, where Paul is very explicit. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And as a Christian, we don't need to be bothered and attracted by the alcohol that is out there. We are to be living by the Spirit, pursuing the things of God. Living under the influence, not of alcohol, but of the Spirit of God. 
And we need to be walking in the ways that God has instructed us through His Word. And we need to have reverence for God. We need to be following His Word. We don't need to disregard it. You have another example in the book of Esther and Hosserus. He is a king of the Medes and the Persians and the Persian Empire. And notice what he does. That as he becomes drunk, as he is partying and living it up, we might say. In the book of Esther, and in chapter 1, what we see here is that he is among his peers. They are celebrating heartily in Esther chapter 1 and verse 10. It says, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abigatha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, and the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Here we see that here's a despicable man, a despicable husband who wants to parade his wife around for others to gawk at and to look at. He wants that, and it's all because he's under the influence of alcohol. He's drinking, and he's drunk. And because of that, he has no regard for other people and just human decency. He certainly casts aside his responsibilities as a husband, doesn't he? Girls, if you ever find a guy that treats you like that, run. If your dad doesn't tell you that, I will. (laughs) I'm sure your dads will tell you that, though. But that's a despicable way to treat someone else. when he is partying and drinking, Ahasuerus is just selfish. He has no regard or love for anyone else. He just wants others to be impressed with his wife. Just for their pleasure and their entertainment. And to be impressed with him, I guess. It's a despicable way to act. And then in Luke chapter 12, there is a parable that Jesus gives. In Luke chapter 12, and Jesus has been very clear as He has been offering some instruction about being ready and to always be alert, to be watchful, and to be waiting for the Lord's coming. He says in verse 40 that you too be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. And then he begins, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And then he begins to explain about this steward, this servant. And how he has been given some level of responsibility 
In verse 42, the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will be a long time in his coming and begins to beat the slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Here is this servant... I understand that it's a parable, but it's illustrating in a very important truth, isn't it? That whenever you are under the influence of alcohol, you don't care about your job. You don't care about your responsibilities. You don't care about measuring up and doing what you are supposed to do. And that's what this servant does. He casts aside his responsibilities. Because he, and he becomes drunk because he incorrectly assumed that his master would come at a later time. He overestimates his own authority. He disregarded his duty. He treats others poorly. A drunk is an unreliable employee, a disloyal friend, an unfaithful spouse, and a disappointing disciple of Christ. And what you have in the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter 23, in our text that we began with this morning, in Proverbs chapter 23 and in verse 35, it illustrates a very important point about alcohol, doesn't it? They struck me, but I did not become ill. They beat me, but I did not know it. When shall I awake? I will seek another drink. People who are addicted to alcohol... The people who cannot live without it. The people who want it and crave it and desire it. They will set aside any relationship, won't they? In pursuit of another drink. That's a sad reality. And the Bible warns us about it. And so we have these eight drunks here in the Bible that we have seen. And I don't know if you were able to see the title of the sermon on the first chart. It looked like it was coming in pretty dark. But the title of the sermon is Why Satan Wants You to Drink. And I suggest to you from the examples that we've seen, this is exactly why Satan wants you to drink. He wants you to lose your dignity like Noah. He wants you to lose your morality like Lot. Satan wants you to lose your good common sense like Amnon and Elah. He wants you to lose your good reputation like Solomon. He wants you to show irreverence for God like Belshazzar. He wants you to have no respect for others like Ahasuerus. And he wants you to lay aside your responsibilities like that slave in the parable. That is why Satan wants you to drink. Now, as I mentioned at the beginning of our sermon, what we really are trying to consider, which is going to draw us closer to God? Is alcohol going to draw us closer to God? 
or is it going to draw us closer to Satan? I think we know the answer, don't we? There's only one wise choice. And that is to abstain from it. In Proverbs chapter 20 and in verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink, a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. It's very clear, isn't it? And as we try to think of this in terms of foolishness or wisdom, alcohol is going to lead us in the way of foolishness. There's an interesting idea that is associated with this word intoxicated here in Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1. And I think what Solomon is doing as he is writing this, he's kind of making a wordplay here. Because the word intoxicated in Hebrew, it has a secondary meaning. The secondary meaning is that of intoxication. But it actually has a first primary meaning that it just means error or stay or stray. And that's all the other meanings in the dictionary behind it. To go astray morally. To commit sin of ignorance or inadvertence. What Solomon is trying to warn us is that if you want to become intoxicated by alcohol, and alcohol in general, when he says that wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, it is going to lead you astray. It is going to lead you away from God. And it leads you down a path that you do not want to go. That is the power of alcohol. And that is exactly why Satan wants you to drink. That's why he is going to put that lure and that temptation out there to try to lead you astray. The Bible tells us to avoid it, doesn't it? In Proverbs 23, he says in verse 31, Do not look on the wine when it is red. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what God has told us. If you're not even going to look at it, then I don't see how you're going to drink any of it. If you're going to be willing to turn away from it, you're not going to have a drink of it. Abstinence is what is the path of wisdom. And drunkenness is condemned as a work of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 21. And yet, drunkenness is not the only thing that is condemned. Turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, in 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle here is writing to the brethren, and he is contrasting the former way of life, living in the lust of the flesh, not towards the will of God. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 3, "...for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles having pursued a course of sensuality, lust." drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible there, but what you might notice is that he says 
Drunkenness, obviously, is condemned as sinful. That's certainly something that we should absolutely avoid. But that's not the only thing that is condemned here. There are three terms that all deal with alcohol. Obviously, drunkenness. Then there's carousing, or maybe your translation would say banquetings. And then, as the New American Standard says, and this is probably the best translation, drinking parties. And it's in that carousing or banquetings and drinking parties that he is being very explicit what Peter is saying. That if you are attending a banquet or a celebration feast, think of something like a holiday party where there is alcohol and booze that is served. That's something that he says you have no business being a part of as a child of God. If you go to a drinking party, and that's probably more of your idea of a rave or what you think of as a, a fraternity college party, something like that, where it's just all about getting together to drink. Peter says, you have no business being there. You have no business socializing in a way that would allow you to be near it and around it and participating in it. As a child of God, you have no part of it. As one dictionary defined the term drinking parties, it is a social gathering at which wine was served. It is the idea that social drinking is wrong. Clearly, as we see here. And that's why the admonition is for Christians to be sober and to be sober-minded, to be alert, to be watchful. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and in verse 5, he says, For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now you might be thinking, well, that's just kind of speaking in metaphor there. You know, he's talking about how we need to be ready for the second coming of Christ. And he's not talking about you literally have to always be sober or you, you can't have a little alcohol in your system or something like that. You think about it though. Do you want Jesus to come and you to miss it? To not be alert? Because you're under the influence of alcohol? We see what has happened. People didn't even know that people were coming in to kill them because they were drinking. You want Jesus to appear and you to be under the influence of it? You want to end your life in a drunken stupor? Oh, I think he is, perhaps he is speaking in metaphor, but I think he also has a very important point that you are to be sober and you are to live sober. And the one exception and caveat that seems to apply to this in terms of abstinence from alcohol is found in 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and in verse 23, 
Notice what Paul tells Timothy. He says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Using alcohol for medicinal purposes, if you have that little bottle for some good old-fashioned cough syrup or something like that, you need to hear the stories about Kristen's grandma. We've got some fun ones there. You've got that. That's alcohol for a medicinal purpose. What it says, small quantity and for a medical purpose. He says use a little wine. A little bit. And what is interesting is that Timothy was avoiding using alcohol, wasn't he? He says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. Timothy avoided using alcohol until Paul told him, you can do this for your ailments. And so this seems to be the only exception that we have here in the caveat that for the whole sermon. But what this actually does, this is the exception that ends up proving the rule, doesn't it? And we need to abstain from it. We have no business being a, a part of it. And Timothy's exceptional case is proving the rule of sobriety and abstinence. Paul gave him the permission to use a little bit of wine for his ailments. Not for the purpose of socializing and just relaxation. And taking stress off of a hard day. That was not what Paul said. So you might be here this morning. You may think, oh, Sean's all wet. He's just a teetotaler. He doesn't want to have any kind of fun. You may not even agree with the conclusions that we've drawn this morning. Maybe you've never heard a sermon like this. I ask that you be patient. You think about it. Don't come to judgment just right now. Go back and reflect and to think and to study. Meditate. And if if there are these conclusions that you think are wrong, then let's sit down and study them humbly. You may be here this morning and you've heard a sermon like this. And you actually agree with all the conclusions. I ask that you be willing to continue discussing this important matter. Teaching others in a way that's helpful. Let's again study and meditate on these things together. Maybe you're here this morning and you've heard this sermon and you've heard the sermon like this in the past and you've disagreed with the conclusions. But maybe you then were patient and you studied it. You thought about it. You went back and you realized, yeah, I need to change my thoughts and my opinions on it. And that was absolutely right. Or maybe you're here this morning and you disagree completely. And you want to actually defend social drinking. I ask that you also study and meditate and be patient. Don't try to debate or prove someone wrong. So what we want to do is we all want to come to a better understanding of God's Word of what is right and what is wrong, what is wise and what is foolish. 
And the Bible clearly warns us that alcohol is a way of foolishness. It will lead us away from God. I think we have to understand that that is minimum what the Bible warns us about and teaches us. Satan wants you to drink because it can ruin lives. And the Bible clearly offers warnings to Christians about our participation and use of alcohol. And Satan wants you to participate. He wants you to drink. Because he thrives when there's sin, when there's chaos, when there is no morality, when you lose dignity, when your senses are dulled. And what you have to ask yourself this morning is, does alcohol and drunkenness draw you closer to God? Absolutely not. So why would you want it to make it a part of your life when your life is about seeking what is good and what is wise? <coughs> Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 5 through 8 that we need to be sober, that we are people of the day. We need to be on the alert. We need to be watching and waiting for when Christ will return. This morning, if you are ready for Christ to return, then we hope that you will encourage others to avoid alcohol and to not participate in it. Teach your family, teach your kids of the dangers of it. But if you're here this morning and you've not been living right, perhaps you've not been seeking wisdom in this matter, and you've allowed Satan to influence you, you've allowed alcohol to influence you in your life, would you not make some changes in your life? We want to help you. We want to encourage you to be what is right and pleasing to God. And we can help you in some way. If you need to respond in obedience to the gospel invitation, we're here to help you this morning. If you would come now as we stand and as we sing.